Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show here, the Andrew Lawton Show, live from London in the United Kingdom, where I have just wrapped up day two of the ARC Forum, the first ever event of its kind for the Alliance for Responsible Citizenship, an organization championed and in part led by Jordan Peterson, one of... uh, significant exports. I'd say as far as cultural exports go, more influential than anything else in the last decade and probably longer than that, unless you uh, start counting like crappy Canadian comedians as as being great cultural exports. But I shouldn't be so bad. Some of the comedians we've uh, sent off are funny. At least the really funny ones are the ones that we uh, send off. And the not funny ones are the ones that you get stuck with on CBC if you're still watching that. But uh, nevertheless, uh, Jordan Peterson, one of many speakers here at the ARC Forum in London, which is, as I kind of joked yesterday, on paper, like on the surface, it reads like the World Economic Forum because it's like, ooh, a global collection of world leaders in various fields talking about the challenges facing the world. You're like, okay, what's the big deal? Where just give me the crickets and get it over with. But uh, the reality, there's there's a T-shirt if you have just given up on life. Just give me the crickets and get it over with. But uh, unlike the World Economic Forum, the folks here are talking about things you would never in a million years hear about in Davos. They're talking about the value of the individual. They're talking about the virtue of independence, of self-sufficiency, of responsibility, of citizenship, all of these concepts that I must say my friends on the streets of Davos, Mr. Klaus, uh, the Fjolso is built by us, Schwab, are not exactly talking about. Now, uh, one example of this that really stood out and I, I think establishes like the great fault line between the cultural left and the cultural right was this snippet of a speech by Constantine Kissin, who you may know as one of the two hosts of the uh, podcast Trigonometry, which is a, a great UK podcast and show that has very frank and open discussions with a number of people. And this is what Constantine had to say. From the dawn of time, human beings have had to work to make the world a better place. We captured the mystery of fire. We invented the wheel. Today, we build buildings that would shock and awe almost every human being that has ever lived. We split the atom, we spliced the genome, and we connected the world through microcomputers that fit in our pockets, that allow us to do amazing things. This morning, I destroyed someone on Twitter with facts and logic from the toilet. It's magic. Remember your grandparents? Remember them? If I could go back in time and transport the grandparents of your grandparents into this room just four generations ago, they would think they'd been abducted by aliens. That's the progress we've made. We haven't made that progress by whining and acting like victims. We've made that progress by unleashing the creativity and talents of people like us here in this room. But I do think we've forgotten what adventure is. Being adventurous is not ordering extra spicy chicken at Nando's. Wrong reference for this room. Uh, Let me try again. Being adventurous is not ordering extra spicy chicken from your personal chef. 
That was, I think, uh, Nando's uh, jab aside, a great celebration of the human spirit, of human ingenuity and achievement. It's a celebration of humanity. And if you look in a bit more detail, you can watch the whole speech online. He was celebrating Western civilization. Western civilization, which is this thing we're told to deplore and hold in contempt, but has actually been the saving grace of the universe. And that is, I think, the great difference between the left and the right. And it's one that's on full display on the ARC Forum, is that uh, these are people that believe in humanity. They have hope for the world, and they believe in the very best of humans. The Davos crowd believes in the very worst. They believe that humans are disease vectors. They believe that humans are polluters. They believe that humans are overpopulators. They believe that humans are the source of all the problems in the world, and therefore human innovation and human freedom are things that, that inhibit the natural world that they want, which is a, a very distorted and myopic view of things, if ever there was one. And that's a, a bit of the big picture as far as takeaways go from the conference today. But I, I wanted to delve into a, an issue that I was uh, talking about with a number of people that actually ties directly in with news on the home front, namely immigration. You may have seen this story, which I find fascinating. A new poll on immigration in Canada shows that public support for immigration has plummeted more than 40%, I think about 44% of Canadians in one recent poll say that immigration is too high. Now, this is the highest this figure has been, this figure that has a, a bit of a distrust towards the immigration status quo in decades, according to some measures. And why that's so important is because we've been told that in Canada, there is this consensus, and certainly among political and media and academic leaders there is, but this consensus that immigration is great, we want more immigration, more, 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 we can't fit enough people in this country, just like keep the doors open and carry on, and if you say anything about it, you are a big, dirty, stinking racist. Have I summed up the liberal position pretty accurately? Well, Canadians aren't buying it. And I think there are a number of reasons for this. I, I think you could look at cultural integration, especially in the wake of the uh, pro-Hamas protests and rhetoric we see across the country. I think the affordability crisis, the housing crisis is particularly acute. Uh, one thing I, I find noteworthy is that when all of these things are happening and coming to a head, immigrants are among the people who suffer most. Uh, just look at uh, some of the stories. Uh, we've seen one study in particular showing that more and more immigrants are leaving Canada. Like imagine this land of liberty, this land of the free, the new hope. You get to Canada, you look around and say, yeah, yeah I, I don't want anything to do with this. And you head back home. That is what many immigrants are doing. And I, you know, I've just heard anecdotally from people who say that they don't like what their kids are being taught in schools. So they're going to go back to Poland or people that say they can't afford a house. So they go back to where they have family and maybe a bit less opportunity, but at least they have a place to live. Well, one of the big challenges we see in Canada is that we pretend we are immune from things that have happened elsewhere. Well, other countries that have tried incredibly large and drastic immigration, places like Germany, which in the span of one year brought in the same rate of immigrants uh, proportionate to the existing population that Canada committed to several years ago. Canada has surpassed 
what happened in Germany. I think it was 2015 when Germany had incredible, incredible challenges. Around that same time, Sweden uh, opened the floodgates and became a hotbed of mass migration and has never been the same since. I spoke with Charlie Weimers, who is a member of the European Parliament. Now, I've actually known Charlie for many years before he was an MEP. We were at a conference together, I think, what, 16 years ago or so. And Captain Tachin, uh, as I said today, we've both had a bit of a different trajectory. He's now uh, dignified in the Belgian uh, or in the Brussels uh, division of the European Parliament. And I am shouting into my laptop computer at a hotel room uh, late at night. But uh, we are both doing our own form of service. And it was great to see Charlie again and speak to him about immigration specifically. Take a look. One of the big trends we hear a lot from uh, several people in politics is that we need open borders, mass migration. That's the way we solve these problems. You're a representative of Sweden. You've seen what happens when that policy takes hold. So uh, what's the warning to other countries? Well, for many years, Sweden pursued this policy, and that resulted in 20% of our population being foreign-born. And we see the results now, uh, failing integration, massive segregation outside not only our big cities, but throughout the country. Uh, and one bombing a week, one shooting a day, uh, gangs starting to infiltrate uh, our public institutions, running healthcare centers to uh, launder their money. Uh, huge problems that it will take generations to solve. I mean, we see rising crime in countries around the world. How much of that can you actually blame on, on immigration in Sweden? Well, let's just pick one example. Uh, 20 years ago, Sweden, together with Poland and Hungary, uh, was, uh, had the least amount of deadly shootings in Europe. Today, Poland and Hungary are still at the bottom, while Sweden has risen, regretfully, to the top. I think that speaks volumes. Do people in Sweden support this? I mean, are these policies enjoying popular support or are they coming from politicians and leaders who really don't care about what ordinary people think? There has never been a popular support for mass uh, immigration to Sweden, but the uh, mainstream parties have uh, done it anyway. And um, uh, what we see now is a big backlash. We have a new center-right government, uh, conservative government, since last year and uh, we are uh, overhauling migration policy, crime policy in order to deal with uh, these problems and we have strong support for these reforms among the population to end multiculturalism basically. I don't know if it's true in Sweden but one of the challenges we certainly see in Canada is that when people start to see the challenges of immigration, be they economic or, or social, they start to turn on immigration, including you know economic migrants that want to integrate. And I, I'm curious if that's happening in, in Sweden as well, where uh, the problems are so acute that now people are, are just completely, almost in whiplash form going against immigration. I wouldn't say so. I think that most people make a distinction between uh, economic migrants who uh, uh, decided for Sweden due to our welfare system and migrants who are in Sweden to contribute. Um, for instance, my party, the Sweden Democrats, we're the uh, second largest party among immigrants. We're the largest par party among Iranian immigrants. Uh, and, and there's a reason for that, that they understand that if we are to deal with this problem, we need to have a cultural nationalism, not ethnic, but cultural. 
And this is what the Swedish voters increasingly want as well. And one of the challenges your country has to deal with is the European dimension of this and that, you know, all of a sudden you're in Sweden, a victim of Italy's immigration policy or France's immigration policy. And I, there really needs to be more support among other European nations to have any real change, doesn't there? Yeah, we need to uh, stop the boats on the Mediterranean because what happens when they uh, enter EU territory is that they can abscond, they can go to whatever country they like. That's why my party is fighting for Sweden's right to establish internal border controls at the border to Denmark so that we can stop uh, these kind of secondary movements. Uh, and I think uh, we're entering a new phase on migration in Europe. Uh, Right now, we're bound by international conventions, but I think we will find ways now to actually implement uh, an Australian model in which you uh, rescind your right to apply for asylum if you enter EU territory illegally. I think we will move uh, to a system where we offer refuge to real refugees outside EU territory, like the UK and Denmark want to do with uh, Rwanda, for instance. That is going to be the future of EU migration policy. Um, if not, uh, it's over. And it's, I mean, it's so disheartening to see so many people in the media and mainstream political voices say that if you talk about integration, there's an inherent racism to that. And, and I think that's probably true in Sweden as well, certainly in Canada, where people that make what are pretty sensible positions like you are, are probably vilified by the media. Well, that's been the case for many decades, but it's uh, finally changing. The consensus is changing. And now the social democrats in Sweden have basically put down their weapons over the issue of uh, migration, just like they did in Denmark uh, many years ago. Uh, and we see the uh, German chancellor, uh, who is a social democrat, uh, Scholz, calling for the expulsion of Hamas uh, sympathizers. Uh, so the tide is turning in Europe. If Europe is a few years ahead of Canada, I think it's very important that Canadians pay attention to this debate. And I, I think Sweden and Germany and France are very much ground zero on this. There are very different dynamics. One is proximity to where a lot of people are fleeing. One is the uh, European aspect, uh, as Charlie and I were talking about. So uh, the immigration issue in Canada does look differently. But I go back to the philosophical and ideological underpinning here, which is that there are a number of people in positions of power that believe borders should be open, that believe national identity should be afforded and issued to anyone who wants it. People like Justin Trudeau, who tweet out a big uh, glib and virtue signally hashtag, welcome to Canada, uh, to tell people to just march on over across Roxham Road. The RCMP will help you with your bags and you'll be in the country free of charge. Oh, well, don't mind that you crossed illegally. We'll still look after you. So, uh, what a treat to hear a politician say we need to not allow people to seek asylum if they cross into Europe illegally. I would love uh, Charlie Weimers to have a go at running Canada's immigration department. But one thing that is similar between Canada and Europe is that changing consensus. I mentioned a few moments ago the polling that we see. Now, there have been a number of polls that have showed very similar things. And then we go to this headline from uh, about an hour before I went on air, courtesy of Immigration Minister Mark Miller.
Canada's new immigration plan to factor in need to bolster housing and services. So now the federal government that accused anyone who criticized its ambitious 500,000 immigrants a year target as being a big uh, Haiti, Haiti, hate monger racist is saying, hmm, maybe we need to talk about immigration in the context of housing and services. So uh, they are they're a government that has said that we could sustain and absorb in Canada one 1.5 million new immigrants in a span of three years. Now, that's actually a lowball number because it doesn't take into account temporary workers, student visas, these other things that actually balloon the number to uh, closer to 3 million over the span of three years. Uh, this is a government that said anyone who objected to that was divisive and xenophobic and is now itself saying, hmm, okay, maybe the numbers are not saying what we thought they were saying. Now, what they mean is they've looked at the polling. They don't actually care about uh, responding to the housing crisis or the affordability crisis, but they do want to respond to polling. And one thing that Charlie said that I think is very much an issue in Canada is that political parties are terrified of this issue. In 2021, only one party, which was the People's Party of Canada, took a position that was skeptical of increased immigration numbers. Pierre Polyev has been incredibly timid on this file. When we've asked him, he's given answers that have not been specific. There was one, I should have pulled the clip for today from a little while ago, where I believe, I can't it was one of my colleagues, I can't remember if it was Harrison or uh, Noah, but one of them asked him a question at a press conference about immigration. And the answer he gave was not anything to do with a specific number. He just talked about, well, you know, we're going to look at all of these different things. And uh, people kind of heard what they wanted to hear in his answer. And, and, you know, some people that were very supportive of him said, no, he's talking about, uh, you know, being responsible and respectful and probably a lower number. Other people said he, he was dodging and evading and uh, people can decide for themselves. But no leader in Canada of a major mainstream political party is coming out and saying what a lot of ordinary Canadians are saying and seeing in their own communities. And I, I think that's incredibly true. And it is uh, very disheartening because this is a very real issue that communities are seeing. Uh, Canada's entire Oh, apparently, I, Sean just told me I asked the question. So uh, forget, forget about Harrison and Noah. Don't give those guys any credit. Apparently, I asked the, uh, the question. But uh, nevertheless, the answer uh, was, I think, accurate in some ways. He blamed Justin Trudeau for breaking the immigration system, but didn't say, uh, listen, I think the 500,000 a year target is unsustainable, which is what the numbers are bearing out. And that's the one thing he didn't say. Uh, it's like a three and a half minute clip. So we're, we're not going to play it, but uh, you can look it up on uh, True North's social media feeds if you are so inclined. Uh, Canada's population growth right now, and we, this is the corollary to immigration. It's a population growth that's rooted entirely on immigration. Canadian families are not having children. And this is a problem the Western world deals with across the board. Uh, the only countries with high birth rates are in the undeveloped or developing world. Uh, Western uh, Shishipu families uh, think that uh, babies are evidently stoking climate change, so uh, they don't want to have their kids. And I'm not casting judgment on people. People can make their own decisions about how to raise their families. I do not have kids myself, so I I'm certainly not uh, casting any blame here. But what I am saying is that it creates population challenges 
which are what we're seeing in Canada, which has a, a very low birth rate, like other uh, Western European nations, for example. Uh, so the only population growth comes from immigration. And I, I spoke about that with demographer and uh, professor Paul Moreland, and he had some interesting thoughts about it. Seems as though most people looking at the numbers, anyone sensible anyway, could tell you that there's a birth rate, a birth rate crisis going on. But there seems to also be a lot of denial about that fact. I mean, how does that even get, from a basic mathematical perspective, rationalized? I think the problem is, uh, first of all, the world's population continues to grow. And people think, well, the population is growing. So what's the question? Why are we worried about it? And secondly, in large parts of the world, we still do have societies where women are having more children than they want. But those societies are shrinking and the annual population growth is declining. So we were growing at 2% a year as a world community. We're now growing at 1% a year. And actually we're building in population decline as we speak. One of the challenges, of course, with this is that you have governments investing a lot of money, NGOs investing a lot of money to lower the birth rate in the developing world, which means even that they view as being too much growth. I think it's right that we help women and men in the developing world to control their own fertility. At the end of that process, if they want to have two to three children, that's fantastic. Having five or six is more than most educated, urban, reasonably prosperous women want. And we would hope that people are becoming more prosperous and more educated. So I think it's perfectly legitimate to be helping countries in the developing world with very high fertility rates, of which, as I said, there are fewer and fewer, to bring that fertility rate down. I do not think it's inconsistent at the same time to be worrying about fertility rates in the developed world. Because I often say, if the Koreans are running out of people, their schools are shutting down, and there are too few people entering the Korean workforce, it's no good saying saying there are plenty of people in Burundi, unless you think that people are completely fungible, you discount the nation state, you discount cultures. Many people in the world don't discount that. It matters to Koreans that they are Korean, and they don't think that they can just endlessly import people from other parts of the world, and that will keep their country afloat. Well, and therein lies the problem we see in Canada. The only population growth in Canada really comes from immigration. Uh, and that's really an inevitable consequence of these trends, is it not? It is, and Canada's an extremely attractive destination for immigrants. I think what's going to become more difficult is that more and more countries will have very low fertility rates and are going to have shrinking workforces. Fewer and fewer countries are going to have large families and able to spare their children. There'll be more and more competition. In Britain, we were used to cheap Irish labor. Then we were cheap used to cheap Polish labor. Those countries are getting increasingly wealthy. Ireland's more wealthy than Britain. Poland's catching up. They're having smaller and smaller families. More of the world is going to be competing for fewer children. And ultimately, we're going to have to take responsibility on ourselves for reproducing ourselves and not expecting that others can do our breeding for us. Hungary stands out as probably the most uh poignant example of a government that's really actively tried to correct this trend. It doesn't seem like they've had a huge amount of success. I mean, maybe some modest success. So has there been anyone that's been able to really reverse this? Hungary's tried very hard. It has had a success in picking up from maybe 1.2 to 1.5 or 6, which is really good, but it's not nearly far enough. I believe governments need to do things. They need to experiment, but ultimately it's going to be cultures, societies is going to be what our priority is about. In Georgia, the head of the church said he would baptize every child who's the third or more of a family. That seems to have had an effect. Israel has a very high priority on having children and families, and that seems to have an effect. Without that change in priorities, without that change in culture, without that change in us, we can't just look to governments 
I think the, any in, in incremental effort that the government will make will be relatively modest. One of the, the real trends that I see in Western discourse around this is that uh, children are bad for the climate. I mean, there seems to be this catastrophic view that climate change uh, is a, a big effect. What's your take on that? Two points. First of all, if you believe in net zero, a child born today in 20, 30 years will not be emitting many uh, carbon emissions. Secondly, if you continue to pursue a normal life, if you have the expectation of someone to drive your taxi if you need one, someone at the doctor's surgery, someone fixing the road. In other words, you consume labor, but you're too grand to produce it. You're merely going to suck in people from low emissions countries to high emissions countries. You're not actually helping. You're merely shifting the problem and, and expecting someone else to produce the labor that you're going to consume. That was demographer Paul Moreland, who I've uh, been a big follower of for quite a while. And it was good to uh, run into him and chat a little bit about what's ending up becoming quite a large story in the Canadian context. And again, uh, you know, you do look at a global forum like the ARC conference this week, and this is not a place where people are promoting open borders and uh, mass migration and why humans are evil. They are doing the opposite. So we are going to shift gears in a moment into a uh, big story I've been following for quite a while, which is the firearms file. But uh, before we get there, I wanted to uh, just take a, a bit of a deviation to share my chat with Leslin Lewis, who is not only a conservative member of parliament who will be familiar to many of you because we've had her on the show on her leadership bids for the conservatives notably, but uh, she is also one of the advisors on the board of ARC. So uh, anyone who takes issue with Christian Freeland being on the board of the World Economic Forum. I'll tell you that uh, what Leslin's doing on ARC is very different because she's not up there to uh, try to pass policy for Canada that uh, we all just wonder why it, uh, how, how it came about. She's there because she wants to uh, kind of benefit from this exchange of ideas, bring it back to the country and elevate Canadians. So I, I chatted with her a little bit about what it is that ARC is to her and why she decided to hop aboard it. So what is ARC and why are you involved in it? ARC is just an organization of people from all political persuasions and with different life views that want to tell a better story. And it's a story that deconstructs and is in opposition to the nihilistic deconstructionist approach that has been really consuming our Western society. And it's really an organization of hope of telling a story of human perseverance and overcoming challenges and recognizing that we can overcome things like the destruction of the family. Um, we could engage in sustainable development without putting people in energy poverty. So there, there are different ways of solving the problems that we have without deconstructing our Western society. One of the trends I, I've seen and heard so far that's really refreshing is a, a celebration of the individual and a family. And I think this is something that's so absent. I mean, if you look at you know a lot of the policies and proposals we hear from the World Economic Forum, it's the opposite of that. So how important is that in a, a policy context in Canada to really look at what individuals can do and what families can do to achieve that different story, as you put it? Well, we believe that families are the foundation of any vibrant and functioning society, and it is a bedrock of the society. And so policies should be around enhancing 
families and supporting them. And when there are problems with, with parent, between parents and children, encourage parents to be involved in their children's lives. Give them the tools to be able to solve those problems and create a structure that respects the family and keeps governments out of people's homes. You're a member of parliament. You're here with uh, 1,500 uh, people from 72 different countries. You're in a, a bit of a unique spot given you're on the uh, advisory board. But what do you take away from this personally, having put all the work in to, to get here? When you go back home, what is it that you are really going to bring from this? Well, this is an inaugural conference. And as you can see, it's phenomenally run. I'm very proud to be a part of this board. And bringing back is just bringing back the courage of knowing that there is a better story, that there, is, there are people who are looking towards building on our society rather than tearing it down. And so I take that back, knowing that there's partners and allies all over the world that are working to build a better story. And just the one thing I'll ask related to that in closing here is that everyone seems to have a role to play. I think there has not really been that I've heard any sense that the decisions are being made here that will go back and affect people. It, everyone here is being asked to make their own decisions and then bring that back to their communities. So what would you like other attendees to take from this this year? And, and what would you like Canadians moving forward to learn from some of the things that are being discussed here that are all being broadcast? Well, it's an organic ecosystem of, of thought leaders, of people that have influence in, in their various sectors, whether it's a single mom or a CEO of a corporation. We know that their life experience contributes something to that better story. And so what I want people to, to understand is that even though I'm a, an elected official, I can still gain a lot of insights from someone, an ordinary Canadian. If you take a look at something like the trucker convoy, th those were ordinary people coming out and, and standing up for what they believed in. And then politicians really said, okay, we'll stand with you. But they were the, 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 the more profound voice. And that's just the reality of where we are today in society. If we're gonna build on our, our great achievements, then we need different voices, different perspectives. And so everybody has a role to play in building that better story. That was uh, Leslin Lewis, the Conservative Member of Parliament and one of the members of the Board of Advisors for the Alliance for Responsible Citizenship. The ARC Forum in London will wrap up tomorrow. So I'll have uh, one more recap show after the uh, program, uh, well, I guess on the program tomorrow. But uh, we have a few more interviews we uh, didn't get to today, but uh, we will get to those tomorrow and in uh, probably end up next week, we'll, we'll have a, a bit of spillover there. But uh, that's the benefit of collecting content. You sometimes end up with more than you can use, which is, I think, uh, a good problem to have. It's certainly better than the opposite. Uh, but let's go to a hobby horse of mine, which is the firearms world. Now, in 2020, you may recall, in the wake of the horrific Nova Scotia shooting, the federal government, with the stroke of a pen, prohibited more than 1,500 types of firearms that the government claimed uh, served one purpose and one person alone, which was to kill people quickly. That was what they said, which was a bit of a shock to people like me and uh, countless other gun owners in Canada that own these things for hunting and sport shooting and had uh, never hurt anything with it in most cases. And we're wondering, well, hang on, how does the government view this as a killing machine? But the government has been unrepentant 
about this order in council in the last three years. They still have not made good on their promise to offer a buyback, which is, you know, a fancy way of saying a mass confiscation. But uh, nevertheless, this was challenged in court. The Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights led a massive legal challenge, which has taken quite a while. And unfortunately, yesterday ended up with a federal court uh, decision that the challenge was within the government's purview. They did not strike it down. Joining me is Rod Giltaka, the CEO of the CCFR. Rod, it's good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Andrew. So obviously this is a disappointing decision. Was it surprising to you? I mean, was your lawyer telling you this was going to be a, a nail biter? Was your lawyer giving you optimism or, or did you go into this a little bit skeptical? Well, I don't know that it was surprising. We we knew that it could go either way. And I think uh, there's a lot of people that uh, that have lost a lot of faith in the, in the judiciary in Canada, which which uh, caused a lot of people to say, you know, we're, there's no way that we're ever going to win this anyway. And especially when you look at the relationship between the judicial system, maybe, and some other cases that have gone on in the last few years. Um, but, you know, our, our team was very confident that we had a good case and that the order in council uh, that the government uh, wrote to ban all of these firearms, they didn't have the authority to do it. And our, our legal team still maintains that. So, you know, um, I don't know if I would say it was expected, but uh, we're going to roll with the punches no matter what. We don't in Canada. I, I would. I think you and I would probably both agree, unfortunately, have a, a clear-cut right to own firearms that's in our Constitution that we can point to and say, you know, this infringes section whatever of the Constitution. So, so what was, just to kind of go back to basics here, what was the core argument here about why this was not allowed in your view? Well, the core ar argument was that in the criminal code, I believe it's section 117, if memory serves me correctly, um, basically it says that the government can't ban any firearm that is reasonably uh, used for hunting or sport shooting. And um, and then I, there's, there's some verbiage there as well that uh, um, it has to do with the governor and council, whether or not they have the opinion that those firearms can be used for those two purposes. And it's like, well, you know, I think the governor and council had the opinion for the last 30 to 60 years that all those firearms were completely appropriate for hunting and sporting use because they were used for those things this whole time. And now all of a sudden the governor and council is just changing their minds. So the, the whole point of that being in the criminal code, I think, was to, to it was really that the Crown didn't like us saying this, but it was a bargain with gun owners back in the days when the uh, Firearms Act came into being. And basically the government, as usual, says, we don't want your guns, conspiracy theorists. We're not going to ban your guns, you know, um, and uh, they just turn around and ban them. So that was put in the criminal code to protect the firearms that were legal at the time. So anyway, um, we were saying that the government, they just didn't have the authority to throw it in reverse after 30 to 60 years, depending on the firearm that they, they you know, the individual firearms that they banned. Um, but the judge disagreed. The judge says, well, hey, you know, the government can change their minds at any any time and take whatever they want, whenever they want from whoever they want. So it's, it's, I think it's a ruling that hurts all Canadians. Well, I would agree. And, and there was an incredibly circular logic in what the judge wrote. I mean, there was one section, I'm paraphrasing here, but where the judge effectively wrote, well, the government decided that these are not guns used for hunting. Therefore, the government was justified in prohibiting them. So like, that's a really convenient way to get around that criminal code revision. The government just decides 
uh, you know, I don't think that uh, that gun should be used for that. Therefore, we have the authority to be. It's just like, basically, they're just self-identifying their way into le- le- legislating this. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, it's uh, the criminal code is there for a reason. It says, yeah, you can't, you can't do that. And those those firearms were used the whole time for that purpose. And it's like, well, today today we've decided that you can't It's no do longer that. reasonable to do that. Yeah, literally yeah it became unreasonable all of a sudden. Yeah, you're right. So explain to me where you go from here. I, I, have you decided to move forward with an appeal? So we did, uh, just making sure my phone, unfortunately I'm, I'm traveling, I'm in Ottawa to testify to the Senate on Especially, Thursday. Yeah, we both nailed the generic hotel backdrop look for the interview. We're not on like two sides of the same room, I assure people. Yeah, I'm just making sure my phone doesn't go to sleep. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, our legal team has looked at the uh, the decision and the early interpretation, I mean, we've only had for a day, right? So the early thoughts are, yes, we are going to file an appeal and it won't be long, it'll be soon. Um, but, uh, we're going to give them an, I think another day or two to, to have a look at it, figure it out exactly out, uh, how we're going to approach that. But the fight is not over, whether it's, um, by appeal, if, if we appeal and that's struck down, we'll take it to the Supreme court if that's where it has to go. Um, and we're going to continue to fight the government on a, you know, from a political, uh, direction. And, um, yeah, it's not over. It's a disappointing loss. It would have been really nice to win. Uh, but you know, we just got to keep fighting. But yeah, if there's an opportunity for an appeal, we will be appealing. End of story. And you and I have talked about this in the past as well. There's also always the opportunity for a political resolution on this. Now, I think it's probably going to take a miracle or some break with reality for the current government to change course on this. But a change in government could very much be a resolution that would carve out the need to have a court win. Well, though all those firearms that were banned, it's still an order in council. And even a minority government, another minority government, if they're motivated to do so, they can just with a stroke of a pen, make it like that never happened. So, you know, if we end up with a conservative government, uh, there's uh, another massive scandal, I guess uh, three a week isn't enough, but maybe there, maybe there's four next week and (laughs) this government falls and there's an election. Chances are it will be a conservative government, either a minority or majority, probably majority. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, we're hopeful that um, Pierre Polyev will keep his promise and reverse those bans and then go really hard on criminal activity with guns. But that government is just an OIC. That government can undo what has been done. So that's uh, that's a political solution. But we're working all angles because um, what's being done right now is immoral and it needs to be opposed. Well, and the one thing that I, I find to be the, the most discouraging about this is just it, it really underlines that precariousness that's inherent in gun ownership. I mean, let's say there's a conservative government that decides to reverse everything Justin Trudeau has done. So you get a reprieve for four years and then there's a liberal government or an NDP government or a green government or whatever, and they do the same thing. And it, it just becomes this whiplash where you never really have the confidence of these. This is my property. I get to own it. I'm not hurting anyone. And I just want to be left alone. Well, that's how it works in Canada, right? And, you know, it's funny, it's, it, it brings up a, a really interesting point. It's people criticize the Americans. They criticize and they, and they also, um, and, uh, and they admire the United States because of their codified rights. And in Canada, we don't have anything like that. We have some, some we have the, uh, the Bill of Rights and then we have the Charter and it's kind of a, a patchwork. And I think you know, people thought they had rights. And I mean, again, kind of going back to what I said earlier, what we've seen 
as I like to say, we've all gotten a really good look at each other in the last few years. Hmm. But what we've seen is you really don't have any rights in Canada. Like you really don't have them. And Canadians, they never really knew that or never really cared because before eight years ago, the reason why you didn't have to really worry about those codified rights is because average, you know, your regular governments, they would never try the stuff that these people mm -hmm. have done. And it never, so it was never really an issue. You know, I mean, they never came for, for guns at, at the level that they are now because they would have lost elections way back in the day. So they never did it and it was wrong. And they didn't want to deceive Canadians saying that it was about public safety. Well, this government's a completely different animal. It's unconstrained. It's like a wild, wild wounded animal. And now we're seeing what it's like when you have no codified rights, really. And when you have a malevolent government that's willing to literally do anything to hold on to power or to carry out its agenda, whatever that agenda is, then you've got nothing. And right now in Canada, we've got nothing. So it's a, it's a strange place to be. The only way to put a silver lining to that is the diagnosis is the first step to treatment. I mean, and have seen government do things they probably would have uh being very optimistic and complacent the canadians are probably thought they never would have done it and here we are so uh perhaps noticing that will yield a, a bit of necessary change rod giltaka from the ccfr will uh, keep uh, track on how you go from here but uh thank you very much for coming on today thank you andrew all right. Thank you, Rod. And uh, thank you to all of you for tuning in. We'll be back tomorrow live from London as the ARC Forum continues and concludes. This is The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Thank you. God bless and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.